0: Hello there, I'm D. ready and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's show, we're delighted to be joined by a guest who Inc. Magazine once called one of the most influential women in tech. Catherine Finney is an author, futurist, and entrepreneur, and over the course of her 30-year career, her work has won her accolades from across the business world and beyond. She may even be our first guest who's been honoured with their own day, with the Borough of Manhattan celebrating Catherine Finney Appreciation Day. Our chat with her covers her incredible career, her passion for supporting and investing in others, the nature of intersectionality, and some really sound advice for how we can all start to stand up for those who navigate the world against more prejudices than ourselves. It's an inspiring chat with a genuinely inspiring woman. So let's head over to the studio and hear from Catherine herself.
1: I got started in tech. I like to say it was like 30 years ago. I'm not super old, but I really grew up in tech. My father was a brewery worker in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is very much middle America. And um, the brewery shut down and really just destroyed our community. And he found himself at a workforce development center. And and took a course in C++, which is the foundational computing language. And it completely changed my family's lives. So he went from this brewery worker to uh, a senior engineer at Microsoft in probably a span of less than 15 years. It's pretty, pretty incredible. So I grew up with that. And of course, when I went to, to university, I didn't uh, study anything to do with technology because that would have been like way too logical. Um, <laughs> and uh, went into politics and worked as an epidemiologist and was traveling when my father became ill and came back to the states and was trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. Um, I also met a I met someone and fell in love and was like I can't travel around the world like I was doing and and stay married and so found myself kind of bored and spending a lot of money and my husband suggested that I start something called a blog. and this was in two thousand and two. and if anyone can remember that far back, like no one knew what a blog was, right? And so started this blog and it was just really timing was perfect. I started it before on um, the 2004 presidential election in the United States when blogging really exploded. And it also started before 2008, which was when we all had sort of the global economic crisis. So mm-hmm. I found myself leading a property that was all about how to live on a budget. And all of a sudden, everyone had to learn how to live on a budget. So... Um, it was really great. And I, and I grew it and I scaled it and I later sold it to a, a small company that's based in the Midwest of the United States and went to go work for another woman-led startup. This one had received quite a substantial amount of venture funding. I think at the time, um, I think it was about 20 to $30 million in venture funding, which in 2012 was quite significant for a woman-led um, organization, especially one that was based around sort of the media online content space and saw how you could actually build something quite large and got firsthand experience in how to do it and how how to work and how to scale it out. And it was while there that I was doing a lot of conferences. And I often found myself the only person of any color or any race that wasn't white in the room, many times the only woman. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I would go to these conferences in Silicon Valley. This was like 2012. It would be 1,000, 2,000-person conferences, and I would literally be the only Black person there. Um, And this wasn't in, you know, pockets of America where there's not a lot of racial diversity. This was Silicon Valley. This was Texas. This was New York, um, which is one of the most diverse places in the world. And I knew there was something going on. And so I took some of the money that I had received for selling my company, and started Digital Divided. We started off as a series of conferences, and then uh, transitioned into a incubator format. And I just recently had what is my third successful exit. I transitioned out of Digital Divided. It's a great organization, and now I'm building yet. Another startup, so it's it's been an exciting time. And it's been exciting to see how things are growing and changing, but also the deep challenges that are still in existence.
0: What an incredible story! And I just there's one thing you said at the start there, Catherine, about your father's experience that really struck me. You throughout your career and the very many things that you've done have always been an advocate for bringing people along and for offering people opportunities and education. Did your father's experience in getting that opportunity to do that course has that informed that ideology or ethos for you in any way?
1: It definitely has. Um, mm. you know I was a very small child when this was going on, but I saw literally how someone giving my father the chance changed not just my life and not my immediate family's life, but entire communities. The person who taught the course was a gentleman who was at IBM, and I often wonder if I could find him, if he's still alive, to ask him, what made you think to go to inner city Milwaukee and to teach displaced factory workers how to code? Like, how did you know that was going to work? Um, And I also wanted to, to meet him just to show him how this, you know, six Saturdays that he gave up in 81, 1981, look at what it led to. Because I think sometimes we have a tendency to not understand how small things can create big, big ripples. And this little small thing of his, of six Saturdays in the 1980s, teaching displaced factory workers has led to entire movement. I wouldn't have been able to build what I built. I probably wouldn't even know that technology was a possibility if my father hadn't had that opportunity. And also if my father hadn't had the ability to really excel in the space.
0: That's so amazing. And I imagine if you did manage to make contact with him, you would absolutely make his year. There's a lot of conversations going on at the moment around race and the really kind of very real systemic biases that are being called out at the moment across the world and also within the tech community, be it education, the legal system, access to funding and the like. one thing that strikes me that you have always kept at the forefront throughout your career is that focus on intersectionality when we speak about these biases. So I think it's a word that a lot of people have heard, but I don't know that a lot of people truly appreciate what an important issue it is and how it actually impacts individuals. Could you maybe start to unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think it is when you have
1: All the sum total of all your identities, right? Mm -hmm. I I remember a friend asked me once, which is harder to be Black or to be a woman? And I said to her, "I, I don't know how to answer that because I'm a Black woman and I see the world through being a Black woman and being from the Midwest and being a mother and all of these identities impact how I see the world. I don't separate them out. And it's actually a privilege to be able to separate out el- your identities or to only think about one identity. But when the context in which I see the world is a sum total of who I am, and that's really what intersectionality is, is looking at the sum total of who someone is. So I approach the world as a Black woman. I don't approach the world as a Black person and then a woman or a woman, then a Black person as a Black woman. And all my experiences are connected to the sum total of who I am. I think it's sometimes easier, particularly for people who only have to deal with one identity that's quote-unquote outside of what is considered the main identity, to narrow it down. But for me, I can't. It is who I am. It is how It colors everything. It colors how I move in the world. It colors how the world interacts with me. So intersectionality is incredibly important. Um, and it's important for us to understand that. And there's nothing wrong with having multiple identities and being part of groups. It is what makes this world an amazing place is that we all have different spaces we occupy and all those spaces are equally valued. And some of the spaces we occupy have more privilege than others. Um, I know that even as a black woman, a cisgendered black woman that I have privileges that if I was a trans Black woman, I would not have. So even being sort of on the lower rung of American society, there is still somebody else who, in at least American society's context, is at a lower rung than me. And I think it's important to understand that and un- understand these spaces that we all occupy and to acknowledge and to celebrate the sum totals of who we are.
0: Yeah. And I think y- you kind of You touched on it there, but I I do think people sometimes struggle to see beyond one bias or prejudice that that maybe they've experienced themselves through to another and realize that perhaps there's an educational disadvantage that somebody has or um, their sexuality is making them more vulnerable to discrimination. You would think, though, that that would breed empathy rather than misunderstanding. It's such a strange thing that people are unable to look past their own experience. Well, I think, you know,
1: a lot of it is the challenge of being in a very visual media driven world. And a lot of what we believe and a lot about what we think and what we see in our opinions are really driven outside of us. I was talking to someone about here in the United States to push for making gay marriage legal. And it was interesting. There was a study that was done and the number one influencer, the number one moment that influenced people in America to feel quote-unquote comfortable with the concept of gay marriage was Ellen DeGeneres. And she had a TV show in which the character came out. Um, and then she subsequently came out as well and, and actually got uh, lost her career for a really long time as a result of that. But because she came out, then people like Neil Pectris Harris came out and then others came out. And then it became this thing of being gay wasn't so much of an other. There's still challenges. I'm not saying that there's not challenges and prejudices and things that happen, but because it was on your TV screen, because people were seeing it, because the media was talking about it, it kind of made it less of other and people got comfortable with it. So a lot of what we think is driven by other people and a lot of it is driven by media And so if we're going to make changes, there's a lot of changes that we have to make in society, but one of the parts is definitely media. The Black Lives Matter movement in the United States that's spread around the world, prior to social media, it wouldn't have been able to spread like this. You know, the the ability for people who are on the ground to talk directly to folks without having to go through someone else's filter. Like that has had a big impact on movements like that growing. And so for people who are having a hard time seeing the identities of others or the multiple identities of others, one of the things I would say to them is choose what media and choose what social media accounts you follow differently. Follow, Mm. if you are having a hard time grasping the rights of the trans community, follow some key trans activists on Twitter so that you can start to learn community. And take it upon yourself. Don't put it on the trans community that have to teach you. Don't put it on the Black community that have to teach you. You go find the information for yourself. If you are not understanding the Me Too movement, follow some Me Too activists and people who are very involved in social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and start to educate yourself about this. And once you start to change your media, once you start to change what you consume, you will also start to see that your opinions and your attitudes will also change as well.
0: That's really, really good advice. So to bring it back then, I guess, to the tech industry, last week we featured an interview with a Columbia law professor, Lenise Panton, an incredible woman, and she really shone a light for us on the bias that exists within the tech ecosystem around funding and race. And she particularly called out actually the intersection of race and gender Mm -hmm. and shared some really stark statistics around women of color in particular and the percentage of funding that they typically attract. So I know this is a cause that you've championed for some time now. So it might be a nice opportunity to talk a little bit more about Digital Undivided. And you've spoken about how it initially came about, but what you've achieved over the last eight years.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that we've achieved, and she probably was quoting the Project Diane report, and one of the things that we've been able to do is really quantify the problem. It's difficult to ignore a problem once you quantified it. And so prior to putting out the first Project Diane report, we would say you know, funding is really not good for for Black women. We we are really struggling. We had a lot of anecdotal evidence. We had a lot of stories, but we didn't have any numbers. And in particularly a, a community like tech, and and even in investment, numbers matter. And so what we did was at the time went back and, and counted and literally did a demographic study. Uh, my background is as an epidemiologist, and so. No one actually, when we first did our first Project Diane, wanted to fund it, which was really interesting. Now, seeing how important Project Diane is, um, luckily for me, because as an epidemiologist, I had training in running large-scale research projects, so I knew how to set it up. And so we went and we counted. And what we found in 2016 was that there was only 88 Black women-led startups in the United States, on average, they raised approximately $36,000 a year. This was in 2016. The average rates by mostly white, mostly male failed startups, these are startups that did not succeed, was $1.3 million. So we weren't even getting the money necessary to fail even properly. Of that $36,000, most of that came from using equity that we had developed. Uh, may it be from 401ks or home equity loans. And the reason why that's particularly problematic is in the African-American community, we're only about one or two generations into actually having equity. So we don't have the historical wealth that other communities, particularly the white community in the United States, have. We have actually been denied the ability to create that historical wealth. So we're in the first generations that are having the ability to be able to create historical wealth. Yet we're having to use that wealth and that equity to fund things rather than building it up and passing it on to generation to generation. So that's particularly problematic from a financial standpoint. The average household income of Black women is $200. That's the average wealth that a Black woman has. and Some some studies even have it as negative. And the average wealth for a white woman in the United States is a little bit over $43,000. So if someone is tapping into their equity, they're pushing down their wealth even more. And that's really important for our community and particularly important for the success of our community. And these are the things that we saw at Project Diane. We also saw, um, particularly in 2018 when we did the update, that the institutions that were producing majority Black and also Latina founders We're not the institutions that VCs and other investors turn to. So usually in the United States, if you're thinking of a startup, you're going to Stanford, you're going to Harvard, you're going to MIT, but those universities are not the universities that necessarily produce the most Black and Latina startups. It's institutions like Howard University. It's institutions like UCLA, UC Berkeley, other institutions in which haven't always been on the radar of investors. So, and if you're using this sort of network-based approach, which a lot of investors use, right? They go to their networks because it's easiest. We don't we, ha- we don't have an infinite amount of time, so they go to where they know. You're going to miss out on this whole other group of people. So it's been really interesting to be a part of this data initiative. The new next version is coming out in fall of this year, which should be really, really interesting. And it's going to be looking at what are the success factors? Meaning for those Black women founders that are successful, what makes them successful? It's going to also look at where are we in terms of fundraising? There is a significantly larger number of Black women founders in particular that have raised over a million. So when we started in 2016 with the first report, there was only about 11 Black women in the entire United States who had raised over a million dollars in venture funding, 11. By 2018, it was a little bit over 37, which is pretty, you know, it's a three-time increase in a two-year time period, mostly due to the first project Diane coming out and quantifying. And in 2020, I'm excited to see how progress is made. My hope is that there's over 100. My hope is that we're tripling every two years. That's, that's my hope.
0: Can me ask you what your instinct was for what's coming down the line in the autumn?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think the number that's raised over a million is going to increase, but not it's not going to be triple. I think what's going to happen is those that have already received a million would have raised even more. And that's exciting, but it's also concerning a little bit too, because that means we're not expanding the pipeline we're not getting new startups into this pipeline and that that is a little bit concerning for me i think we're also going to see the success factors for a black woman founder and for a latina woman founder is going to be very different than the success factors for a white male founder so for example we know just in my experience working directly with startups and investing myself that those startups that have strong social networks I Meaning they have a strong social community backing, not just financial backing, are those that do best. I mean, that's really crucial for our founders. Those who are, for example, mothers, it is very important to be able to have your entire community behind you. We have one of our founders who, her name is Farrah Allen, and she has a company called The Labs, which is an IP platform for music rights, random blockchain, which is like a brilliant, and she's doing an amazing job. And when we had our demo day, she had 30 people there, 30 people ranging from a nine month year old baby to like her parents who were in their sixties and seventies, all had on her startup t-shirt. That was one of the things I think that made Digital Divided really unique is that our Demo days were like for family. You wouldn't see at a Y Combinator or Textars or any of the traditional incubators when they have their demo days. You wouldn't see family there. Ours had family and VCs is a very interesting mixture of people. Right. But she's successful because she was able, her family was behind her. Her father is a bus driver. And she was telling me that her parents got subscriptions to Ink Magazine and to Fast Company and they were reading them and like then texting her or sending her notes about you should check out this VC and, you know, and how it was really important to her that her family was so behind her and then how that was such a critical part of success.
0: That's incredible. And I, I love that they're, they're family events because I suppose that's another thing that ties into intersectionality. Like being a parent changes your experience or your access to all of these things. It does.
1: And I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't for my family. That That's just the fact. And, you know, I remember when we were first doing our incubator program at Digital Divide and I had just moved to Atlanta. And my son was a baby and I was trying to figure out like a nanny, like childcare, just all the stresses that any parent who's ever had to deal with the whole nursing school thing would totally understand. And I called my mother and I was like in tears. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I need help. Like I need help. And my mother said, you know, I'll come. Do do you want me to come? And I said, okay. And I'm thinking she's coming for like you know, a week or two. And she's like, no, do you want me to move to Atlanta to help you? And it just took my breath away (laughs) that she would do that. You know, she was a widow. She was living a great life in Santa Fe and having a total amount of fun. But she was like, I'm going to come here to help you because I see what you're doing and I want to support you. And for me, I had to humble myself quite a bit and said, yeah, I need the help. I really do need your help. And that has been a crucial part. Uh, having a partner who really supports me, my husband, is incredibly supportive of the work that I do. And um, we really share in parenting. It is not just me. And that's incredibly important, particularly for women, regardless of your race, to have a partner who is truly a partner for you. It's really, really important and who is comfortable and okay with you winning and succeeding. And that's really an important part of success. I often say to founders, look, you know, marry someone useful, partner with someone useful, meaning make sure that whoever you bring into your life is someone who contributes. And I'm not talking about this money or they can write you a check or do something for you, but that maybe they they can uplift you when you have a down day. Maybe they're the pe- person who gives you the pep talk. Maybe they're really good at just being a support and a listener, but make sure whoever you partner with is someone who is useful.
0: That is good advice for work and life, to yeah. be fair, Catherine. Staying actually on the family theme, I know you've announced that you've, you're stepping back from Digital Undivided and you're launching a new initiative called the Dooney Fund. I believe that's named after your grandmother. Yeah.
1: So originally, you know, what, what is the saying, you know, make plans and, you know, God laughs or something. Like one of the ways to no. make God laughs is make plans. So, Originally, in stepping back from did, I was going to travel around the world with my family and write a book that I am writing with Portfolio Penguin Books. It's a startup book on how to start up a company when you are not a rich white guy. And that's actually the, the tagline when you're not a rich white guy, like how to build anything. And of course, we had a series of things that have happened rapidly. Global movements, and then some movements that have been really acute in terms of the United States. So we have COVID that's been had a global impact, but it's had a particularly strong impact here in the United States. We, you know, about a month and a half later, we had George Floyd happen, and he was murdered approximately a mile away from where I went to elementary school. So A lot of things happened that sort of changed what I was going to do post being able to transition from dead after leaving it for eight years. And so it was during COVID that we were noticing that Black companies, Black founders were having a particularly hard time getting some of the economic support that came from the U.S. government. The PPP loans which were these loans that were created this massive fund that was created in order to support small businesses during the, the shutdown time of COVID here in the United States. It wasn't going to small businesses. And there's a lot documented on that. And it especially wasn't going to small businesses of color. And we saw that being so grounded in the community And since I wasn't able to do the world trip that I wanted to do, I took part of that money and created a fund just to give small, what I call micro investments to black women entrepreneurs. It was platform agnostic. It was category agnostic. We gave small amounts of money to everyone from hair salons to people who are running solar, electrical startups To people who are actually, I didn't even know this was a thing, creating portable sinks. I didn't know portable sinks and basins were a thing, but it makes sense. And we gave out over a thousand in less than six weeks. We gave out a thousand micro investments in a six week time period. And the goal was not only to provide a little bit of funding to help, but also to just say, we see you, that I see, I Catherine see you. I've been where you are. I know how hard it is. I know the frustration of applying for things that are supposed to help you and not being able to get it for reasons that have nothing to do with you. I understand that frustration. And the idea was to encourage people to continue on. And it's been really powerful to see what has happened as a result of the duty fund. My grandmother, whom I'm named after, her name is Catherine Hill, was an entrepreneur and I grew up with her. And she's one of the reasons why I'm here. I spent summers with her and she was a seamstress and so close for others. And I got to see firsthand what it was like to run a small business as a Black woman. And it had a profound impact on me. And so being able to support over a thousand other Black women founders is probably one of the, the most fulfilling things that I've done And on the other side of that, which is really unintended positive consequence, it was myself and two staff members that donated our time to doing it. This was outside of Bench on Divided. We were able to connect with our own humanity through doing this work at a time where everything was bad. (laughs) Um, You know, there was a period of time where there was just no good news coming out of the U.S. in April and everyone was feeling kind of down and not knowing what to do. We've never been in the global pandemic. And particularly as a staff, we were feeling kind of dejected and, and not knowing what we could do. Um, the Dooney Fund gave us a sense to, a sense of community, a sense of helping others and helped connect us to our own humanity. It was a huge gift. It's much, much bigger gift we got than what we gave.
0: And what an incredible legacy to share with your grandmother now. I
1: know, I know. And she's just such an amazing person. And, And to be able to celebrate her in that way, it's really powerful.
0: It's very, very powerful. So like for those listening then, Catherine, who agree that it is powerful and are encouraged or inspired by what you've done and what you plan to do, like what advice or what message would you give them about how they can support Black entrepreneurs and Black businesses?
1: You know, I think there's a tendency for us to only look ahead of us, to see who's ahead of us, and not to look to see how many people we're actually ahead of. And there's a a story that I tell about a friend of mine who contacted me post our presidential election in 2016. There was a lot of people when our current president was elected that had, it was a real shock for a lot of Americans. Mm it really, really was. And people start to examine like what happened? How did we get here? And I think globally, everyone's kind of facing that. I know in in parts of the EU, people are facing like, how did we get here? Because I thought we were doing so well. And now we're like in a totally different place. And so a friend of mine, he's a very successful white guy, venture capitalist, called me and was like, I don't know what to do, Catherine. I mean, this is like, you know, and I gave him like two minutes because I'm like, you still are privileged. You'll be very okay. (laughs) Like, But I gave him two minutes to, you know, kind of express himself. And then I said to him, you have a birthright. You're you're kind of like Prince Harry, right? No matter what Prince Harry does, he's always going to be a royal. And people are going to always treat him as a royal. He can't give that back. It is his birthright. He was born into it. When you are a white male, particularly a white male with a high economic status in the United States, you have a birthright. People are going to give you privileges that you don't even have to ask from. It doesn't matter what you may think. They're going to give it to you automatically. And I think this is true around the globe. It's true in the EU and other parts of the world. You're going to get this. They're going to give it to you. And so the question is, what do you do with it? Because you have it. You can't give it back. They're going to give it to you. So what do you do with it? And you have a choice. You can use that privilege and power to bring other people with you. There are rooms that you will get in that someone like me will never be invited to. It doesn't matter how amazing and great I am. I will never be invited. There's monies that you're going to get that I will never, ever be able to get. Or for me to get it, it will be just virtually impossible. We saw that here in the United States with the dissemination of the PP loans and other the economic recovery loans. So use your power. And what he said to me, his response was really shocking to me because I had never thought of it this way because again, I see the world as a black woman, right? So I never thought of what he shared to me in his way. And he said, you know, I am always looking forward. I see that I'm not Steve Jobs. So I don't think in relation to Steve Jobs that I'm powerful, that I have money or anything because I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not Bill Gates. I never took a moment to look behind and to see how far ahead I was of other people. Wow. I never took the moment to turn around and say, oh my God, like I have a huge amount of privilege because I'm always facing forward and seeing that I'm not him. But I never looked behind and said, whoa, I'm so much further than her. And I think that that story illustrates we are all, we all have positions of privilege. It might not even just be race. It may be gender, it may be race, it may be class, it may be sexual orientation. We all have it. And so the question is, what do we do with it? How do we help others? And it could be something as small as, you know, retweeting for the next year in your social media account only. You know, women founders or black women founders. There's a one of the CEOs of Glitch, which is a tech company here based in the United States. His name is Anil Dash, and Enil's a really well-known um, tech leader. For a whole year on his Twitter account, he only retweeted women. That's it. He wouldn't retweet anybody else but women. And that's something relatively small, right? It doesn't cost you anything, it doesn't cost any money. But The fact that he did that inspired so many other people to do that. The fact that he did that, women like myself, who was a beneficiary of him retweeting, gained all of these new founders, followers who were able to follow what I was saying to be participating in conversations with me, people and connections I would have never gotten out of this one real simple act. So it doesn't mean necessarily writing checks, although that needs to happen too. It also means just simply maybe saying, you know, for the next six months, I'm only going to retweet, you know, Black leaders. That's it. Because I know the people reading me may not have it, have exposure. They may need a bridge. They may not understand. So I'm going to take it on
0: myself to make sure that I'm that bridge. But it's like, it's such a simple thing that people can do. Just check who's behind you. And just remember there are, you have a birthright.
1: And, and what it means with the birthright too, is that I think there's sometimes a lot of, shame and fear and confusion when you are a white person and what to do with your whiteness, right? And sometimes, particularly in the United States, it it comes off as, oh my God, well, you know, let me just entrench myself in this position instead of thinking, you know what? I do have power and a privilege and I can't really get rid of it because people give it to me whether I want it or not. So how do I use it? What can I do? Because you can do something. You're not powerless. Um, you can do something in this. If you have the financial means, you can invest. Please invest in people of color founders. I would love to see and hear an investor who's like, for the next year, the only thing I'm going to invest in are Black founders. That's it. I'm not going to invest in anyone else, but Black founders. And i want to see what happens. You can do that. Or you can just say, for the next three months, I'm only going to retweet you know, women-led, startups, or I'm only going to retweet Black founders or Latino founders or Indian founders or whatever it may be, you can do that. You can do something. It is easy. It doesn't cost you anything. It does not remove your position to be generous and to participate. And it's
0: good for you that's such good advice. And unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Genuinely, I could chat to you all day, but I'm conscious that you probably have far more important things to do with your time. Before I let you go, Catherine, where can people keep up with your work?
1: Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Catherine Finney. You can also join me on LinkedIn, Catherine Finney. I'm pretty, if you Google Catherine Finney, a lot comes, mm-hmm. comes up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also on Instagram. Um, hi, I'm Catherine is my Instagram and also on Medium. I write a lot. I'm in the middle of writing books. So I'm in this very writing sort of mode and you can definitely follow me on there. And I look forward to to hearing from from you all and hearing your ideas
0: fab and then the the book because of course it's you're the first black woman to have a business book published by penguin's business imprint portfolio yeah. when can we expect that to hit the bookshelves
1: so it's slated to come out in 2022 prior to all of this and so i've been asked to move it up <laughs> um, like everything has shifted as we can imagine i think we're all experiencing this and so you know it may come out earlier I'm under a, a little bit of a pressure to to get it finished. And it's exciting because, you know, I'm a startup founder. I like working under pressure. It works good for me. And so I'm really in the mold of writing the book and really thinking about the ideas and the strategies that are really crucial to being able to build when you don't have that birthright.
0: Fantastic. Well, I really look forward to reading that, Catherine. And it's been such a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.
1: This is Inside Intercom.